I want to start off today with a question. So think about it for a second and then um, let me know in the chat and I'll call on you to give your answers. Um, the question is, if you could sum up the entire gospel message, if you could sum up the good news, the basically everything important that we believe and do here, if for some arbitrary, unfair reason I said, give me one word that could that it can encapsulate everything, or if there's just one word to focus on, one one point that you can get across to one other person, the most important word, what would that word be for you? Or phrase, I'll give you, you can, you can, but what, what would that be for you? Jen says love. Sharon says grace. Ryan says Jesus. Thanks, Ryan. Adoption from Arkiwa. Sarah says wholeness. And John, that's a paragraph. That's not a word, but I'll read it. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. And from the Reese family, a quote from Will Campbell, we're all bastards, but God loves us anyway. Yeah. Sarah, love God, love people. Thanks, everybody. Um, my, my, my personal answer for this, ooh, we've got unconditional from Ms. Easy. Ah, Izzy is, is that, is that like a rapper name, a DJ name? My personal answer is love. Um, and I've, I've thought about this a lot. Um, in fact, like, Going back in my own faith story, there is a moment, what I can call now the final act of my deconstruction, where I just had to just let everything go. Um, nothing made sense, the structures that I had, and I couldn't make it work, and I was tired of making it work, and I just let everything go. And that was one of the very first pieces that came back in, right, was not just the idea of love, 
but the idea that that is what is needed most in the world, that if you look around the world and all of the problems that we have, almost all of them could be solved if everybody just had an increased capacity to love each other. And I really firmly, strongly believe that. At the same time, like saying that, I could understand because I, I kind of, there's a part of me that still says, isn't that just a little bit simplistic? Isn't that just a little bit maybe naive or overly uh, reductionistic? It's a word. Um, and I think that that sentiment or that idea comes from I think we think that because I don't know that we can, that we fully understand what love really is. We have like these windows or these pictures of it, but I don't know that we can fully see all the way in to what love is. Um, let's see. Richard Rohr in his book, The Divine Dance, says, where was my love quote? Ah, yes. We project onto God our way of loving. Our love is determined by the supposed worthiness of a given person. She's pretty. He's nice. I will decide to love you because you're so pretty or nice. And, of course, this has little to do with love, but it feels like love. We cannot imagine a love that's not evoked by the worthiness of the object. And so we try to scrub ourselves up, make ourselves as attractive and as worthy as possible. And he's going on to make his other points in his book. But I, that, that idea that we don't fully grasp what love is, that we, we, we can latch onto something that it feels like love and it's identifiable kind of as love. And maybe it is even part of love, but it's not, not the fullness and and the depth of what that is. And so when I think about that and I think about, okay, well, where can we go for, for more on love? Like the very first thing that comes to my mind in scripture is the book of first John. One of my favorite uh, of the epistles and, um, and just like the, in my, in my opinion, the book on love, it contains the phrases. This is how we know what love is. This is love, uh, and even God is love. And so what I would like for us to do um, for today and then for the next several weeks, we're going to be looking through the book of First John. And uh, when I told, when I was telling Henry that this is what we're going to be doing, he said, now, wait a minute. You did all 16 chapters of Mark in one week and you're going to do five chapters of first John in like 13 weeks. I said, yeah, I think that's right though. Cause there's so much depth in it. There's so much stuff in there that uh, I don't want us to miss it. One other thing too is I don't, my my goal with this isn't for us to learn more facts about love or to have a broader dictionary understanding. I don't 
as, as interesting as some of these things are to me personally, we don't want to dive into like the Greek roots and the, the different words and the different all of that. What I'm looking for is not just the knowledge, because what is what good is knowledge about love if it doesn't change us? I my goal is for us to continue on that journey for an increased capacity to love others so that we can begin to continue to change the world. So with that said, let's take a look at First John. Um, and apologies, I'm going to adjust my camera up and stand up because my brain doesn't seem to work the same way when I'm sitting down in a chair staring at a computer screen. So enjoy me pacing. All right. One other thing that I would normally do when we would crack open one of these letters or anything really in scriptures, I'd spend a lot of time digging into the context. Who wrote it? Why did they write it? When did they write it? Who did they write it to? What was the original context of the people that heard it for the first time? All of that stuff. I'm not going to do that this time, though. Um, instead, I want to invite you to just receive it as if it were given to you. And I feel okay about this for a lot of reasons. But one is that I think First John is kind of uniquely sort uh, set up for this. We call it a letter. But it's not structured like a letter is or like any of the other letters in the New Testament. There's no um, salutations at the beginning. It doesn't say I'm John, an apostle, and I'm writing to this group of Christians that are experiencing this thing. He just kind of starts in with this thing. Um, there's no wrap up at the end in a similar way. It's 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 written as if it's written to all of us. So let's dive in. He says right at the beginning, we announce to you what existed from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have seen and our hands handled about the word of life. The life was revealed and we have seen and we testify and announce to you the eternal life that was with the father and was revealed to us. What we have seen and heard, we also announce it to you so that you can have fellowship with us. Our fellowship is with the father and with the son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy can be complete. And I confess that a lot of times when I read this, my brain says, this is the introduction. Get through it and get on to the next part, which is where the meat is. But we can't do that because there's so much in here. This whole bit about we announce that what we've seen and heard and felt, this is a very physical um, experience that, we, that they had, right? These are these are firsthand witness accounts of the apostles, right? They're talking about the five senses. They saw, they heard, they touched, they smelled. They probably didn't taste, but, you know, but it's very physical. And yet at the same time, it's also not like, listen to this again. We announced to you what existed from the beginning. Um. We asked about the word of life. This life was revealed. So it's also something eternal and spiritual that was revealed to them. This, this weird, like, very physical, very, like, fact-based, evidence-based, and also this other ethereal revelation that was given to them that's always been there. What a great way to start talking about Jesus without actually mentioning Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the eternal God into the physical world. 
And this testimony that they saw and have passed on and have passed on and passed on now comes to us. And what they then talk about is they want to share it for fellowship. And I want to stop and talk about the word fellowship for just a second, because fellowship is one of those words that I think has become, at least in my mind, overly churched. I'm sure at one point in time, right, the word fellowship had a great and rich heritage of people talking about fellowship in, in great many different contexts. But like in my mind, it's always about church, right? If you're going to have a fellowship that's going to be like a church potluck or a church picnic or a church reception, like pretty much something with church and something with food, right? And if you think about it, a lot of church buildings have fellowship halls, which is where the kitchen is. So that's like literally the church and the food intersection is fellowship. That's not what they mean in First John. They're not talking about, we want to share this with you so that we can eat in the fellowship hall. They're talking about something much richer and much deeper, and it's huge. And I think it's actually well explained in the Gospel of John. In chapter 15, Jesus is talking to his apostles and his disciples, and he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vineyard keeper. Remain in me, and I will remain in you. A branch can't produce fruit by itself, but must remain in the vine. Likewise, you can't produce fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will produce much fruit. Without me, you can't do anything. As the Father has loved me, I too have loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy will be in you and your joy will be complete. This is the fellowship that they're talking about. It's not a social event. It's not, it's not even just like friendship. It is, it is a very intimate interconnectedness, right? The relationship of a vine to a branch. This idea of remaining in him and he is in us. This idea of it's the same way that the father and the son in the Trinity are related to each other. We too are invited to join into that relationship and that fellowship. And did you notice the same phrase here in the gospel of John 15 and in this book at the end, at verse four, we're writing this to you so that our joy can be made complete. Right. It's that it's this. That's how I know it's the same. That's also how I know this is the same author because they use a lot of the same language. But so that our joy can be complete so that we can join together. So they are coming at us with their well, with what was revealed, what was experienced in the flesh so that we can join in and have that kind of an intimate relationship and so that their joy can be made complete. That sounds absolutely wonderful. The problem is, all right, is that that like this book was written thousands of years ago. This invitation has been out there for us, for everybody, for our entire lives and so and so much longer. Um, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, Dallas Willard talks about this invitation. He says, we have received an invitation to make a pilgrimage into the heart and life of God. The invitation has long been on public record. You can hardly look anywhere across the human scene and not encounter it. It is literally blowing in the wind. A door of welcome seems open to everyone without exception. 
No person or circumstance other than our own decision can keep us away. Whosoever will may come. The major problem with this invitation now is precisely over familiarity. Familiarity breeds unfamiliarity, unsuspected unfamiliarity, and then contempt. People think they have heard the invitation. They think they have accepted it or rejected it, but they have not. The difficulty today is to hear it at all. And I think that's the situation that we're in. This wonderful, glorious invitation to enter into fellowship with God, with the Father and Son and Spirit in a very real and intimate way is out there. But very few of us are even aware that it's there and can clue into it. Why is that? That's something for us to think about. Um, but I do have a thought. One reason is revealed in the next few verses here in chapter one. This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. Now, light is awesome, right? It's that was from Genesis one. God says, let there be light. And God says that was good. Like then there's been generally no question that light is good and that darkness is bad. Um, right. I have a light on me right now. If I were to turn that off, I'm, I'm in the shadows and it's kind of harder to see. It's much easier to look at me when I'm in the light. Light's great. No, no argument there, except, except when you're in the darkness, if I have the shadow, you can't really see me all that well. And if there's something on my face or on me that I'm kind of don't want you to notice, the shadows is a much better place for me to be because then you can't really see the things that I want to hide. Because when I'm in the light, I'm fully exposed. I'm here and you can see it. And so anything that we're afraid of or ashamed of or that that we don't like about ourselves, it's comfortable in the darkness to hide that away from us. Because if we want to come into this amazing fellowship with God, we have to come into the light because God is light. And so that's the that's why he continues to go on where we say if we claim to have fellowship and live with the darkness, we're lying and don't act truthfully. Right. We can't hide ourselves and also fully be in fellowship in the same way that the father and the son are in full fellowship. But if we live in the light in the same way as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other. There it is. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from every sin. If we claim we don't have any sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us, which, again, is something you can do when you're hanging out of the darkness because nobody can check that. Right. You can't fact check it. You can't see it. I'm I'm fine. I don't have any sin. I just, you know, my eyes hurt. So I'm going to stay in the darkness. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from everything we've done wrong. But if we claim we've never sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That back and forth, the light versus the darkness. I think that is a scary thing that can keep us out 
a full fellowship with God because it requires vulnerability. It requires an intimacy. It, it requires us actually to let go of a little bit of pride too. This idea that, okay, no, I'm, I'm following the commands. I'm doing right. I'm, I'm doing okay. It requires full honesty to look at at yourself and the things that, that, that you wished other people wouldn't see. Confession is so important. It's, it's right. We, we do it every week collectively in our worship gathering. Uh, and I love that we do that, um, that that's, that has become one of our practices. It's a strong practice, um, because it reminds us that we, we do have things that we wish we could hide, but that we still, even then, we still don't need to fear the light because when we confess, the very next thing we do in our gatherings is we hear the good news. And the good news is always that we can be forgiven. And not just that we can be forgiven so that we can say, hey, look, now now I have no sin. Now I'm clean. Thanks. I'll see you later. But that we actually get to enter into this amazing fellowship, that we get to join with Jesus and join with the Father and join with the Spirit and join into that amazing flow. So, I don't know. Let me ask you guys. How how do you react to this? Does this resonate with you? Does this spark any thoughts, ideas, fears? What what do you hear this morning? Just drop your name in the chat and I'll call on you. Sharon. The idea, like, I don't know that I ever really thought about, like, the idea, like, fellowship being connected with the idea of being in the light. And, like, those two things together just makes me think of authenticity and bringing your whole self. And, like, each of they had, I think those had always kind of seemed like separate concepts. And so it's kind of cool to, like, blend the two. Yeah. Thanks, Sharon. John. Yeah, I've been, <clears throat> I've been involved in 12-step recovery work for about, Lord knows, 20 years, no, more like 30 years. And recently I've been involved with uh, Work Hawks Anonymous online uh, Zoom calls. And uh, these are people that are really tangled up in their work. Some of them own businesses or they're involved in uh, commission sales. And some of them are like college students, so overachievers, and they're killing themselves by not getting up rest, having no social life, no spiritual life, they're striving. And, but when they, but the program is designed to facilitate them confessing and admitting it to the group. And as they do that, I see it over and over and over again, immense changes and shifts and transformations and myself. And I go to about three, four, five of those, uh, half hour calls per week. And I've been with it for about two and a half, three years. And I've seen amazing changes in the people that, that are willing to come. And, and, and I mean, step one says, Mitch, we're powerless over work or work avoidance. Our lives become unmanageable. 
and that's that is the that's the first step of twelve. Um, so yeah, confession, and 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 it's it is like you said, Tim, uh, Tom, Ted. It, it is bringing the darkness that you're hiding from yourself, from your spouse, from everybody else, but they can see it to the light of just telling other folks. They're going through the same kind of thing. It's a safe place to do it. Nobody's going to put you down because we, we're doing the same thing in our own crazy ways. Yeah. Thanks, John. Marquila. I was thinking about how you said originally, you know, the idea of fellowship is usually around Christians coming to eat, you know, and, but really from what you're describing today, real fellowship is intimacy. And intimacy can't happen in in those type of settings. Real intimacy happens when you're open and honest and not just the buzz and the hype of eating, you know, passing another plate, but just really sitting honestly and sharing. And so it just made me think of that fellowship being something that's very in, intimate and like Sharon said, authentic and honest, like deep, deep authentic honesty is real fellowship. That's the only way that you can come into this oneness with the father. And then, but at the same time, that's how we come into oneness with each other is when you have those moments of genuine honesty and authenticity. It's just kind of beautifully communicated today. Yes. Thank you. That. That's yeah, perfect. <laughs> uh, Sarah Holland. Um, I was really struck by this idea of the comfort that is in the shadows of um, uh, I can um, that there there is a comfort level there of like you don't have to see all the stuff that that I'm dealing with and, um, and I'm comfortable here, but that's, but, uh, the call is to, um, pay attention to why, why that feels comfortable and how to, um, strive toward that, that, uh, vulnerability and, um, authenticity. Um, Sarah Walker. So, um, I read Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life and Community last year for some, something. Um, and he just talked about how we can have corporate worship and prayer and we can have fellowship in our service and we can still be left to our loneliness. And he says the final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as the undevout or as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. Um, and he says, so we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. And he says, the fact is that we are sinners. Um, and that was really impactful to me. Um, I think sometimes we tend to 
like we do want to gather around the things that we're for, right? We want to gather around the causes or the things that we, the ideals that we want to embody or whatever. But it does come down to the fact that we all agree that we're sinners and we all agree we need Jesus. And there are so many organizations and groups that can have fellowship based on things that they're for and goals that they're working toward. And I think what's different, kind of like what John said about 12-step groups or recovery groups is what's different about us is that we all agree we're sinners. Um, and so that, you know, our church, our spiritual community, we should be a safe place for that kind of fellowship and not just the fellowship that's calling us higher, I guess. Yes. Yeah, I think I think it's easy to fall into that trap when with the church too, as we're we're here for a cause, whether or not that cause is a social justice cause, or whether or not the cause is um, evangelizing and converting a lot of people, um, right? And so you you rally around the cause and around the goal, and less, and it becomes yeah more about. How can you, how are you helping toward the cause? What are you doing for this? What are your strengths? And, and instead, yeah, we, we need to be a group, a confessing group, a group that is, that is openly flawed. And because of that, connected to each other and to God. There's another quote from this Richard Rohr book. Um, he says this, God does not love you because you are good. God loves you because God is good. I should stop writing here. There's nothing more to say, and it'll take the rest of your life to internalize this. He's, I think he's right. <laughs> It's such a simple statement, but but I but that that truth, being able to really accept that truth, I think is part of needs to be part of our journey. Uh who was that again? That was Richard Rohr in the book that was The Divine Dance. Um So to wrap up, um, I do believe that love is at the core, that an increased understanding of what love is and an increased capacity to love is, is what this world needs to be healed. And that the first step on our journey needs to be to step into the light and to accept this invitation to join with God to join with with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and enjoy the fellowship, but also take from it the power, right? The vines don't produce fruit by themselves, or the branches, sometimes my metaphors get mixed up, but you get the point. We're not going to be able to work on ourselves to make us more loving. 
we need to connect to God and God can make us more loving. God can teach us how to love and can empower us. Y'all pray with me. God, we thank you for the invitation that sits in front of us to join with you. I pray that you open our eyes to see it, that you, that you open us up to realize what is available to us right now, if only we would just be aware. I pray that you give us the courage and the faith and the trust to step into the light, to be who we really are, to have no walls around us so that we can fully commune with you and with each other. And Lord, help us to love. Help us all to love, not just us on this Zoom call, not just us in Christian churches, not just us in America, but Lord, everybody. I pray for changed hearts across this world. Because that is the only way for things to be really made right. Teach us all how to love. How to love more. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.